Section 1. The Biblical Period 1. The Old Testament Christian ethics has its genesis in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, the Holy Bible. It is this book that contains the records of God's revelation to man and of man's experience of that revelation. Christian ethics, therefore, begins with God, continues with God, and ends with God. Dr. John Wilkinson brings us right to the heart of the matter when he points out that, quote, Ethics in the Old Testament cannot be separated from religion, for both are intertwined and both depend on the character and the will of God, end quote. Inasmuch as everyone is religious, it will be that particular religion or worldview or metaphysical system which will determine ethical standards. Basic to Christian ethics in the Old Testament are two foundational revealed truths. One is that God is holy, and its following corollary, as stated in Leviticus 19 verse 2, quote, You shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy, end quote. Old Testament ethics cannot be grasped apart from some understanding of the holiness of God and man as a fallen sinful creature. The other truth is that man was created in the image of God, Genesis 1 verse 27. It is these foundations that have shaped Christian ethics in general and governed the Christian concern for the care of the sick. This doctrine of the Imago Dei was central to the strong Christian belief in the sanctity of life. During the past few decades, the doctrine of the Imago Dei has been vehemently attacked. Peter Singer, 1993, had an article published in Pediatrics, the journal of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The title of the article was, quote, Sanctity of Life or Quality of Life, end quote. In this article, Singer stated, quote, We can no longer base our ethics on the idea that human beings are a special form of creation made in the image of God, singled out from all other animals and alone possessing an immortal soul, end quote. He referred to the concept of the Imago Dei as nothing more than, quote, religious mumbo-jumbo, end quote. That must be stripped away. All life for Singer is a continuum, and your place in the scale of things is determined by the quality of your life or its utilitarian value. Let us hear his own words and, at the same time, remember that he is representing the Centre for Human Bioethics at a large, influential American university. He writes as follows, quote, Only the fact that the defective infant is a member of the species Homo sapiens leads it to be treated differently from a dog or pig. Species membership alone, however, is not morally relevant. Humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they are members of our own species are judging along lines strikingly similar to those used by white racists who bestow superior value on the lives of other whites merely because they are members of their own race. If we put aside the absolute and erroneous notion of the sanctity of all human life, we may start to look at human life as it really is, at the quality of life that each human being has or can achieve. End quote. To understand the origin of Singer's system of ethics, 
we have to go back about 3,500 years to ancient Egypt. There, they also believed that every living thing had a common being in nature. John Wilson, in the Symposium Before Philosophy, explains this as follows. It is not a matter of a single God, but of a single nature of observed phenomenon in the universe, with clear possibilities of exchange and substitution. With relation to gods and men, the Egyptians were monophysites, many men and many gods, but all ultimately of one nature. End quote. The difference in things was one of degree, not of kind. This even included the gods. Juvenal, the Roman satirist, AD 110, ridiculed the continuing aspect of this old naturalistic synergistic faith when he facetiously observed that for the Egyptians, quote, it is an impious outrage to crunch leeks and onions with the teeth. What a holy race to have such divinities springing up in their gardens, End quote. In spite of her many achievements, Egypt was known as the, quote, mother of diseases, End quote. Every part of the body had its own god. Magical methods were based on the principle of transfer. To cure a migraine, rub the head with a fried fish. Other remedies include, quote, lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pigs' ears, excreta from humans, animals, and even flies, end quote. Behind all these remedies stood the healing deities who were called upon to heal the suppliants. Amum is praised as, quote, He who frees from evil and drives away suffering, a physician who makes the eye healthy without medicine, who opens and cures squinting, end quote. Eusebius of Caesarea, AD 300, refers to Apis as the, quote, son, end quote, or, quote, living replica, unquote, of Ptah, and credited him with the origin of medicine. Imhotep, the deified physician, became the god of all physicians. Isis, quote, great of magic, end quote, was the god who healed children. Khonshu, the personification of, quote, soul energy, end quote, had power to cast out demons and heal diseases. And Serapis, the iotromantic deity, healed through dreams, oracles, magic, and other mystical means. It was from this synergistic paganism that Jehovah, the covenant God of the Bible, or Yahweh, to use the Hebrew designation, supernaturally delivered his people Israel. This exodus from Egypt is the focal point of Old Testament revelation. It was through these mighty acts of revelation that Yahweh revealed himself to Israel as their divine healer, a surgeon and physician. The Locus Classicus of this revelation is Exodus 15, verses 22 to 27, with particular reference to verse 26, quote, If you are careful to obey the Lord your God and to do what is right in his eyes, paying attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not inflict on you any of the diseases I inflicted on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer, Rope. End quote. This has to be seen against the background of the highly developed magical medical polytheistic milieu of Israel's past in Egypt, with all its healing deities. 
It also looks ahead to the coming conflict with the Syrian Canaanite healing deities. The conflict here, it should be noted, is not between God or Yahweh, to use the Hebrew name, and human physicians, but rather between Yahweh and all other healing deities. To have any other healer than Yahweh would be in religious conflict with strict monotheism. This principle applies to that controversial passage in 2 Chronicles 16 verse 12, where King Asa of Judah did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians, made oracular inquiry of the pagan physicians. It is difficult to understand why some medical historians use this passage as evidence to prove that the Bible denigrates the use of medicine and physicians. C.F. Keel correctly notes, quote, It is difficult to understand why some medical historians use this passage as evidence to prove that the Bible denigrates the use of medicine and physicians. C.F. Keel correctly notes, quote, It is not the mere inquiring of the physicians which is here censured, but only the godless manner in which Asa trusted in the physicians, end quote. It has nothing to do with the use of means or those we would classify as physicians today. Furthermore, one recent commentator on First and Second Chronicles has stated, quote, The view that God is the supreme physician is prevalent throughout the scriptures, as well as the conviction that illness is divinely inflicted. The turning to God for cure is attested abundantly throughout the Bible. Nowhere, however, do we find a negative attitude towards human medicine or human attempts to heal. End quote. In the light of dozens of such passages in the Old Testament, it becomes apparent that obedience to Yahweh's laws was understood to be the sure path to a healthy, abundant life. Moses underscored this when he wrote, quote, They are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land. End quote. Deuteronomy 32 verse 47. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary on Leviticus, adds, quote, What is envisaged is a happy life in which man enjoys God's bounty of health, children, friends and prosperity. Keeping the law is the path to divine blessing, to a happy and fulfilled life in the present. End quote. The Old Testament teaching is that, in general, one cannot enjoy a happy life without a healthy life. Indeed, as Fred Rosner points out, quote, Of the 613 biblical commandments and prohibitions, no less than 213 are health rules imposed in the form of rigorously observed ceremonial rites. End quote. Even though many scholars in that genre of biblical studies known as higher criticism make much out of comparing Yahweh with the other healing gods of the nations around Israel, the comparison soon breaks down. The deities of all the other nations of the ancient world, whether Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Canaanite, Syrian, Hittite, Greek or Roman, were capricious, moody, lustful, engaging in obscene sexual orgies and themselves subject to sickness. H.W. Haggard, in his interesting study entitled The Doctor in History, notes, quote, The gods of Egypt, like men, might suffer from disease. When a god was stricken with disease, he turned for aid to his friends among the gods. End quote. There is never the slightest hint that Yahweh suffered 
or was the subject to such weaknesses. He promised to accompany his people, remain with them, and manifest himself to them as their divine healer. The later prophets and poets testified, quote, He will not grow tired nor weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. End quote. Isaiah 40, verse 28b, quote, He who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. End quote. Psalm 122, verse 4. When Israel broke covenant with Yahweh and was sent into exile, one of the main reasons given was that, quote, You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. End quote. Ezekiel 34, verse 4. The heart of Old Testament ethics is not just a written code, but a personal relationship between man and God and man and man expressed in a covenant. Shortly after some of the deported Jews returned to their homeland after their captivity in Babylon, towards the close of the 6th century BC, the oral interpretations of the Torah began to take shape and give rise to Judaism. This oral interpretation of the Torah was later codified in written form and became the library known as the Talmud of legal and extra-legal commentary to and application of biblical law and narrative. During this period, the rabbis concluded that the Torah gave permission, even making it obligatory for the physician to heal based upon the phrase, quote, and see that he is completely healed, end quote. Exodus 21, verse 19. Although healing lies only with God, he does give physicians the wherewithal to heal by earthly or natural means. The Jewish attitude towards physicians and their responsibilities for patients to seek medical aid is beautifully described in the Apocrypha by Ben Sira. We shall quote just a few verses. Quote, Honour a physician before need of him. Him also God hath appointed. From God a physician getteth wisdom. God bringeth out medicines from the earth. And let a prudent man not refuse them. My son, in sickness be not negligent. Pray unto God, for he will heal. He that sinneth against his maker will behave himself proudly against a physician. End quote. Ecclesiasticus 38 To be sure, a few of the minor sects like the Karaites totally reject the permissibility of human healing because, so they concluded, it interfered with the divine will. Most Jews, however, had a very practical way to get around these tensions. Rabbi Feldman tells a story of a rabbi who, on seeing a man deathly sick and in need of help, decided to fulfill his obligation and give the man a few coins. Before doing so, however, he confessed to his fellow rabbi that he might be interfering with the eternal plan of God if he did so. Caught in this dilemma, he asked his fellow rabbi if he could help him. His friend agreed that he could. He just advised him to be an atheist for a few seconds and give him the coins. 2. The New Testament The fact that our civilization is known as Judeo-Christian is indicative of the close connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of our institutions and professions which make up our society have functioned within this common Judeo-Christian heritage. The reason for this, of course, 
is that Christianity, growing out of its Jewish roots, encompasses every department of life. The Holy Scriptures make it very clear to us that any area of life that does not come under the dominion, authority and lordship of the God who revealed himself in these scriptures is idolatrous. John Hutchison is perfectly correct when he explains that, for the Christian, quote, Religion is not one aspect or department of life besides the others, as modern secular thought likes to believe. It consists rather in the orientation of all human life, absolutely. End quote. Many today want to abolish any religion based on absolutes, without giving any definition to the religion that will replace it. The fact that religion is a universal phenomenon seems to escape them. No one, anywhere in the world, at any time, have been found without religion. Culture is nothing more than religion externalised. Even the 1980 preface to the Humanist Manifestos says, quote, Humanism is a philosophical, religious and moral point of view, end quote. Paul Tillich brings the whole thing together for us in one succinct sentence, quote, Religion is the substance of culture, and culture the form of religion, end quote. It was the basic doctrines of the Old Testament that were presupposed by Jesus Christ, the Apostles and the early Church. Its strict monotheism its divine infallibility, its record of Yahweh's universal, absolute and eternal law as summarised in the Ten Commandments and the theology of the covenant were all foundational to the New Testament and the early church. Here, already contained for them, were the eternal foundations of the moral order of a Christian society. When Jesus did assert his own ethical authority, it was to condemn legalism and to insist that the real meaning of the law was not simply to curb and control external actions, but to radically alter inward attitudes and motives. The locus classicus for this is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Quote, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfil Greek plerosai them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. End quote. Matthew 5 verses 17 and 18 The exact meaning of the word fulfil has been discussed by scholars for centuries. No matter how precisely it is defined, however, it must always include quote, to obey, end quote, quote, to establish, end quote, end quote, to give full meaning, end quote. It also conveys the meaning to make something operative and to give the power to do so. Thayer, in his Greek lexicon, adds this note of explanation, quote, Universally and absolutely to fulfil, that is, to cause God's will, as made known in the law, to be obeyed as it should be, and God's promises, given through the prophets, to receive fulfilment. Here we have the two words that define the unity of the two testaments, promise and fulfilment. Here we also have the reason for St. Augustine's famous dictum that the New Testament is hidden in the Old and the Old Testament is revealed in the New. For the first Jewish followers of Jesus, or Messianic Jews, 
to describe them more accurately in their historical context, his coming did not mark the beginning of a new religion called Christianity. On the contrary, they saw his coming as the fulfilment of all the promises and expectations of their sacred scriptures. When they saw the crippled cured, the dumb speaking, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, they, quote, praised the God of Israel, end quote, Matthew 15, verse 31. After Jesus raised the widow's son, St. Luke records that the crowd was, quote, filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people, end quote, Luke 7, verses 11 to 15. The kingdom of God, with all its healing and transforming power, had suddenly broken into human history. The proof of Jesus' power and glory as the one and only Son of God, or the Old Testament promised Messiah, was recognized more than anything else through his healing ministry. When the apostles were sent out on their first preaching mission, they were given, quote, authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. End quote. Matthew 10 verse 1, compare 10 verses 7 and 8, Mark 6 verse 7, verses 12 to 13, Luke 9 verses 1 and 2, 10 verses 8 and 9. St. Luke describes this mission as follows, quote, They set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. End quote. 9 verse 16. We could give numerous examples to show that this was the pattern for the whole apostolic period. For example, Acts 8 verses 5 to 8. Among the most distinguishing marks of the new messianic age, so the Hebrew prophets foretold, compare Isaiah 30 verse 26, would be the restoration of the maimed and the healing of the sick. When John the Baptist had doubts about the authenticity of Jesus and the Messiah foretold by the prophets, he sent two of his disciples to inquire of Jesus directly. The answer of Jesus, recorded identically by both St. Matthew and St. Luke, was, quote, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor, end quote. Luke 7, verses 22 and 23. Here, Jesus associates his healing ministry with signs confirming his messiahship. For him, sickness and disease was something that had no place in the kingdom of God he was to inaugurate. He believed that, like sin, sickness and disease had moral and spiritual roots in the kingdom of Satan, which he was sent into the world to destroy. Adolf Harnack explains it as follows, quote, To him, all evil, all misery, is something terrible. It is part of the great realm of Satan. He knows that progress is possible only by overcoming weakness and healing diseases. End quote. It is very emphatic in the New Testament that when Jesus came in contact with sickness, he had to do something about it. The, quote, good news, end quote, he came to proclaim, was to rid man of sin and its effects in every area of man's life, including sickness. With him, human need and suffering took precedence over everything. In spite of his many clashes with the religious and political authorities, the common people, quote, listened to him with delight, end quote, Mark 12, 
verse 37, J.D. Crossan explains why they were so delighted with his teaching. Quote, He speaks about the rule of God and they listen as much from curiosity as anything else. They know all about rule and power, about kingdom and empire, but they know it in terms of tax and debt, malnutrition and sickness, agrarian oppression and demonic possession. What they really want to know, can this kingdom of God do for a lame child, a blind parent, a demented soul screaming its tortured isolation among the graves that mark the edges of the village? End quote. The rest of the New Testament and the success of the early church provides the answer to these oppressive forces that are as real today as they ever were. Basically, Jesus taught that it was man's alienation from God that was the root cause of human suffering, even though there may be mitigating circumstances over which he may or may not have some control. When Jesus of Nazareth entered this world, the visible evidence of sin, sickness and suffering was universal. It has been rightly said that, quote, suffering is the great common denominator among human beings. Everyone has an experience of profound hurt and loneliness and suffering, end quote. From the New Testament perspective, there is a close correlation between sin and sickness. For some, their sickness was specifically related to their sin, compare John 5 verse 14. For others, it was clearly unrelated to any transgression on their part, for example, John 9 verses 1 to 3. All deserve judgment and death, compare Luke 13 verses 1 to 6. All, therefore, need the great physician's touch, compare Matthew 9 verses 9 to 13. Quote, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son, end quote, as St. Paul puts it, to freely offer to all who would repent and believe liberty from both sin and sickness. When Jesus announced his mission in his home synagogue at Nazareth, he read a portion of Isaiah's prophecy of the coming messianic age, 61 verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, verses 18 to 20. One commentator expresses the power and beauty of Jesus' Jubilee proclamation as follows, quote, Jubilee release is not spiritualized into forgiveness of sins, but neither can it be resolved into a program of social reform. It encompasses spiritual restoration, moral transformation, rescue from demonic oppression, and release from illness and disability. Jesus' healing ministry was predicated upon the conviction that his heavenly Father had empowered him to heal both soul and body. The Gospel records portray him as the omnipotent physician with power to heal all of man's spiritual, physical and even mental infirmities. His healing power and saving power was one and the same. Jesus the Saviour cannot be divorced from Jesus the Healer. Harnack refers to the indivisibility of this unity when he reminds us that, quote, he did his work as Saviour or Healer. The first three Gospels depict him 
as physician of souls and body and the saviour and healer of men, end quote. It is absolutely essential to keep this in mind because it is his activity as both saviour and healer that clearly sets him apart from all other healers in the ancient world when comparisons are made. The one Greek word in the New Testament that helps us probably more than any other word in our understanding of its teaching on the subject of healing is sozin. Let us look at this word which means quote, to save, end quote, quote, to rescue, end quote, quote, to deliver, end quote, and quote, to preserve from danger. Unquote. This was cognate with Soter, Saviour, one of the most common epithets of Jesus in keeping with his saving and healing mission. Matthew one twenty one and Soteria, salvation. It should be kept in mind that in the ancient world, when devotees viewed their deity as saviour, healer and deliverer, it was all part of one inclusive concept. Likewise, in the New Testament, it was a word that was all-inclusive. In the Gospels, therefore, Jesus was regarded as saviour from sin, sickness, death, eternal destruction and demons. One exegetical dictionary describes this as follows, quote, That from which one is saved include mortal dangers, death, disease, possession, sin and alienation from God and eternal ruin. Another feature the Gospel records as integral to the healing miracles of Jesus was his compassion. It is specifically recorded that, quote, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. End quote. Matthew 14 verse 14. This, of course, reflects his father's acts of mercy and grace in the healing of the sick, as expressed in Psalm 6 and 103, which have as their background the healing of serious illness. When the word compassion, splanklon, is used with the many acts of healing in the Gospels, it is used in two distinct ways. On the one hand, quote, the term reflects the totality of the divine mercy to which human compassion is a proper response, end quote. And on the other hand, the word has messianic overtones which reflect the very heart of God towards sick and suffering humanity. Michael Brown is correct when he points out that, quote, this insight would suggest strongly that just as it is right and fitting for the church to lead the way in performing acts of mercy for the hungry, impoverished and socially and politically oppressed, so also it is right and fitting for the church to lead the way in the ministry of healing for the sick, both by natural and supernatural means. For both the Old Testament and the New Testament, everything must be put in the context of faith in Jesus as Messiah and belief in the truthfulness of his word. This faith, however, is more than just mental assent or a profession. Faith, in the biblical sense, implies a costly demand resulting from a spiritual transformation involving personal commitment and a personal relationship with Jesus as the anointed of God, 